This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. All right, reading a new book. The, the subject matter is something that I cover, you know, in my day job. January 6th related. Every time I hear a new angle of this story, it floors me. One of the authors of the book is here, Hunter Walker. He wrote The Breach with Denver Riggleman, who appeared on CBS News 60 Minutes. Do you get a real aha moment when you see that the White House switchboard had connected to a rioter's phone while it's happening? That's a big, pretty big aha moment. Really does suggest that there was much more coordination than the American public can even imagine when it came to January 6th. The thread that needs to be pulled is identifying all the White House numbers and why we have certain specific people, why they were talking to the White House. The Meadows text messages show you an administration that was completely eaten up with a digital virus called QAnon and conspiracy theories, an apocalyptic messianic buffoonery. But Jenny Thomas specifically, uh, to see somebody like that who has that type of access to the president and married to a Supreme Court justice, pushing that type of nonsense to the chief of staff, to the president, that's a, that should be an eye-opener for everybody. All right, Hunter Walker joins us now, one of the authors of the book. He wrote it with Denver Riggleman, as I mentioned. Hunter, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. I love this book because right off the top, you and Denver are sort of going through how this big lie started and spread. I mean, it's incredible. All those really important people spreading this line of uh, these talking points that frankly were not anchored in reality. I mean, it is, were you surprised by how this lie spread? Well, just speaking for myself for a moment, you know, I was also there that day at the Capitol um, I, at the time, was a White House correspondent for Yahoo News. And I went to cover the president's speech, the former president's speech. Um, and a lot of people ask me, oh, are you surprised that it got violent? And the answer is no. Um, I, I went out there with a helmet that day. 
um, in part because we'd seen a year of protests in D.C., but also because we'd seen months of these Stop the Steal events, um, including some in the nation's capital, that had become violent and that had the participation of groups like the Proud Boys. So, you know, I knew things were getting overheated. I knew things were getting dangerous. I knew that this was being fueled by former President Trump and his allies in Congress. And I also knew that this was happening in conjunction with the formal objection to the free and fair 2020 election that was occurring at the Capitol that day. So, you know, I'd like to think of myself as someone who was not naive at all about what happened on January 6th. And yet when I met Denver um, and when the two of us started digging into his data together, I have to say my, my mind was completely blown. I was blown away by the extent to which the political and militant components of what happened that day were directly linked, the way they were coordinating. And I was also blown away by, frankly, the level of derangement that we saw, particularly in these Marx Meadows texts, where people at the highest levels of our government were you know, sharing absolutely insane, violent, fanatical conspiracy theories from the most questionable sources. And, you know, as someone who, you know, I'd like to think I'm a, I'm a cynical, jaded, tough reporter. Uh, I had seen a lot. I'd worked in the White House through the entirety of the Trump administration. I'd covered all these various left wing and right wing protests in the streets. I, I'd like to think of myself as someone who's seen it all. But quite frankly, I was shocked. And that's really what we tried to capture in the book, both the extent of the coordination, the extent of the infrastructure that went into January 6th, and just how shocking and dangerous it all is. Yeah, and 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 I think you you captured that right off the bat, how all of these calls and texts were coming in to Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff, who was like this hub of this receptor for all these people willing to go out there and uh, tell the American public as surrogates that, oh, really, President Trump won, and here is some crazy idea, here's why. Were you surprised that Mark Meadows really seemed to be at the center of how this sort of developed in the White House? I mean, to one extent, no, um, because, you know, the traditional role of the White House chief of staff is to serve as effectively the gatekeeper for the president. He really should be the hub of activity um, in any White House. Um, but what was really interesting about Mark Meadows in these texts was, A, you know, just how wild, you know, the things were that were coming into his phone from people like Paul Gosar, people like Louis Gohmert, people like Ginny Thomas. Um, you know, I guess from the outside, quite literally standing on the outside of the Capitol steps as the violence unfolded, I kind of assumed that um, a lot of these people in government who so clearly, you know, were responsible for what happened that day were in on the joke, so to speak. You know, they were doing this for their own political ends, but they knew it wasn't in reality. And quite honestly, looking through some of their private messages, many of them, including Meadows himself, seemed to be true believers. Um, and one thing that was quite fascinating about Meadows, you know, at moments 
including one exchange we capture in the breach where, you know, he seems to have been involved in the ouster of um, the so-called Kraken, uh, the far-right lawyer, Sidney Powell, who was kind of involved in some of the wilder challenges to the election. Um, so at that moment, he seemed to be a moderating influence. But on other points, Meadows seemed to be a full-on true believer. Um, and that's why, you know, one thing that's so interesting about these texts is they are the tip of the iceberg. These are texts we detail kind of how this went down in the book. And I think it's something that's really been missing from a lot of the coverage that we've had over Mark Meadows. We have these texts because he handed them over. But he didn't hand over his phone. And he fought the release of some texts. So these are the ones he let us see. And they were this shocking. God knows what else is still out there. And then just to continue on that front, some of the text messages, including from members of Congress, quite literally showed things like, let's take this to signal or check your signal, where they were moving to encrypted apps. So we know that Meadows and others deliberately obscured some of their communications. And I can only wonder how much worse those are than the things we did see. Yeah, and you, you sort of, you discuss, well, why did he turn this over? Like you're, as you noted, you're sort of perplexed by it because there is just so much incriminating information there. And it had me thinking, you know, did he, does he want to expose as much of this as possible? Um, or was it just some bad advice he got from <laughs> his, it's just weird. It's bizarre. I mean, listen, the whole, the whole thing is weird. How all those people sort of bought into this stupidity. I mean, it was ridiculous. Some of the, some of the theories that they were floating and who was calling in willing to help. And then, gosh, I still cannot believe uh, not only the information that you have in this book, but just that that day even happened based on how, you know, given how it all started and, and, and uh, Meadows fanning the flames and, former President Trump fanning the flames and members of Congress fanning the flames. And then we end up with January 6th. And frankly, the fact that it's still going on, there's still people who are going out on TV and saying that the election was stolen. Uh, it, it really is remarkable. Let me ask you this. Why, why come out with the book now? What are you and Denver Riggleman trying to accomplish by making this public now? Do you want to have an impact on on the midterms? I mean, why now? I mean, it's 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 really quite simple. And, and I think I can speak for both of us on this point. Uh, Denver is a, a military intelligence expert um, and former member of Congress and former staffer on this committee and myself as a journalist. Um, some of the information that we saw um, that was gathered by his teams just seemed to need to be urgently presented to the American people. Um, you know, very specific things, such as the fact that the call data records his team compiled quite literally show that the political 
and military components of January 6th were linked, and that those lines of data, those, those literal links, those phone calls went straight up into the White House and even to President Trump himself. Um, so, you know, President Trump was in a trackable way linked to the militants. He was, you know, we can note how many degrees he's removed. Um, from some of these key players now. We can note the way that the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys were coordinating. And then we can also note some more specific things from the text messages. Uh, Mark Meadows' text messages revealed that, um, you know, Jim Jordan was coordinating efforts to challenge the election with false data out of the headquarters of CPI, a dark money group in Washington. Um, There were members of Congress in these text messages who were never named as being part of the strategy sessions to overturn the election. We see an exchange between Mark Meadows and Amy Kramer, uh, the planner of that rally where Trump um, told people to quote unquote, fight like hell. Um, She was also responsible for some of the earlier stop the steal demonstrations around the country. And at one of these in DC, she and Mark Meadows orchestrated a Marine One flyby for these militant conspiracy theory fueled protesters. And, you know, he texted her, I was waving the entire time. So in my mind, this is vital information that gets to the level of organization behind this attack on our country and the culpability of people at the highest levels of government, including um, in Congress and in the White House. And, 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 you know, quite frankly, we've taken some flack in the past week. You know, why did we come out with this while the investigation was ongoing? And, you know, the reality is I'm a reporter and, you know, we, you don't want to necessarily get in the way of an ongoing investigation, but you also can't sit on, you know, crucial information that's vital to the public interest. So, you know, we rushed this book. We did sort of give up to the summer recess for for hearings to proceed, but we wanted this information out. And, you know, there's no end date for the committee right now. Did people want us to sit on this information indefinitely? I couldn't in good conscience do that, and neither could Denver. And I also have to say, I'm kind of surprised at some of my colleagues in the media because news outlets have had these texts, and you didn't see it reported that these members of Congress were all involved. You saw very selective reporting of, frankly, some of the more favorable messages involving members of Congress. Some of them were not even named up until the publication of this book. But most importantly, the basic fact of these link maps that visually and factually represent the coordination, connection, and involvement all the way up to President Trump, his phone is on these maps, The fact that that hadn't been presented to the American people seemed like something we needed to change. And this was our effort to do that. You know what, Hunter, since since our listeners cannot see what these link maps are, could you describe what they are? Well, you know, I'll describe one in particular. Actually, I'll describe three because, you know, uh, these things are seared into my brain just because, you know, as I said, I don't think I was naive about January 6th. We all saw President Trump tell people to fight like hell. We all sort of recognized the level of coordination required in sort of having a challenge on uh, on the floor of the Capitol, having the president hold an event where thousands of his supporters come. So, you know, that day we knew this was this was a bit of a coordinated high level effort. But looking at these link maps, here's what you saw. Um, One of them shows the rally planners um, who, you know, organized these various um, 
completely baseless protests against the election on the country. And I, I just, you know, feel obligated to assume, uh, uh, to include the disclaimer that, you know, officials at every level of government, including from Trump's own administration, um, you know, Republican officials in the states have affirmed that there was no widespread fraud in the 2020 election. But these rally planners who were, you know, um, planning these um, conspiracy-fueled violent protests are one point on a pyramid. And below them, you have the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. Uh, and what these link maps are is essentially Denver's team got phone records from key persons of interest. Whether they were folks like the rally planners who were known to be involved in January 6th, or they were individuals who broke into the Capitol that day and were charged by the Department of Justice. So the team got those phone records, combed through and took each call, and kind of tracked calls that featured multiple points of interest um, in a visual way. So this pyramid shows the rally planners were in phone contact on one side with the Oath Keepers and on one side uh, with the Proud Boys. And then at the base of this pyramid, there's a thick line representing hundreds of phone calls showing just how extensively the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys themselves were coordinating. Um, then you have the map that they call the monster, um, which is basically, you know, um, the overall representation of the data. And this is a map that took them hours whenever they needed to call it up on a computer, because you're talking about millions of lines of data. And basically it showed how key elements such as militants, uh, rally planners, and Trump associates, including members of the president's own family and high level members of his White House, um, were all linked to some degree and we're all in communication to some degree in the months leading up to in the days after january 6th and again the same thing as with mark meadows text messages this is all just the tip of the iceberg because you have people like mark meadows who fought the committee getting their records you have people like roger stone one of the unquestionably most central people on the link maps who fought the committee obtaining his phone records and the reality is we can still see how important he was because he was in touch with so many other people whose phone records they did get that they can at least see one side of his conversations. So just imagine what they don't know. Um, and then the third map that I'll, I'll just mention is there's one where you see a blob of sort of the higher level Trump associates who were all talking to each other. Um, and, you know, the lines of communication are so thick there that when you're zoomed out, it just looks like, you know, one big amorphous blob. But there's a thin bridge going off of it to one cell phone. And that cell phone was traced to Trump himself. So he's literally on these maps, just a couple degrees removed from some of these more violent, unsavory, and unquestionably criminal, they've been charged by the DOJ, characters. Um, one interesting thing about the phone of Trump's that they tracked, it didn't operate um, like a normal phone. Uh, all of the calls to Trump's phone were incoming. For this phone, at least, he didn't seem to make any outgoing calls. And again, it's an example of, you know, this information is so shocking, but our knowledge is limited to some extent because we can't see if those people left voicemails. We can't see if Trump checked that inbox ever. We just know that they were reaching out to him and, you know, that in that way he was connected to the apparatus, the infrastructure of January 6th. Based on what you and Denver Riggleman know, 
I don't know. What do you think? Do you think prosecutors have a seditious conspiracy charge against some of the people at the highest levels of government based on these charts that you're talking about, based on some of the information you have? What do you think? And I and I say this as this Oath Keepers seditious conspiracy case gets underway. What do you think? Well, you know... Um... Denver's a data guy, Um, you know, prior to being in Congress, prior to working for the January 6th committee, he has decades of experience as an Air Force intelligence officer um, and then as a consultant for the NSA. He is an expert in this telephony, uh, telephone data analysis, and he likes to stick to the ones and zeros. He doesn't like to get into speculation. And, you know, that sits very well with me uh, as a journalist. Um, I don't really want to speculate on you know, whether our DOJ would charge people with crimes here or whether they should, which is, by the way, a different question from, you know, whether they should, can or will are sort of three different questions. And that's not that's not our area. This book is not about our analysis. It's not about our opinions. It is about raw data. And the raw data quite simply shows that the military and political components of January 6th were linked and that there was extensive coordination between these various groups. I will leave it to the public and the courts to judge, you know, what exactly that means. I will say that, you know, the one area Denver gets into a little bit of his own personal analysis is in telling sort of his life story. Um, And that's a piece of the breach that I hope people will also pay attention to and that I hope is not lost. He details his experience growing up in a far-right conservative, religious, Mormon environment, and A, the effect that had on his family. And also, in an empathetic way, he discusses why people, you know, might be susceptible to to QAnon, which is a conspiracy theory that is almost perfectly designed to, you know, capitalize on, quite frankly, hundreds of years of prior conspiracies. I mean, there's, at its heart, QAnon is based on the ancient, you know, Uh, protocols of the elders of Zion, blood libel, you know, smears about the Jews. And and it's designed to kind of catch on among people like the ones that Denver grew up with. Um, He then went on, as I said, to be in the military and to um, serve in Congress. And again, he talks about his personal experience inside the Republican Party and how through his private conversations with people in the Freedom Caucus, he saw how the party had changed and sort of moved away from being the party of Reagan and towards being the party of Q. Um, you know, he he talks on record and, and, and lifts the veil a bit about how people like Paul Gosar and Steve King were explicitly engaged in white supremacist rhetoric, um, allegedly talking about the um, superiority of the white race uh, when, they, when they were at an event together. And he takes this personal experience and then he couples it with his military expertise. And the overall diagnosis is he sees the MAGA wing of the Republican Party as a militant Christian nationalist movement that has now quite clearly become a domestic terror threat. Um, And as much as this is analysis, he really is a guy who sticks to the data and he's talking about this in technical terms. Um, So one of the things that I think is so interesting is he he goes into detail about how the rioters on January 6th and the um, 
progenitors of the, the promoters of the QAnon conspiracy theory use techniques that he saw when he was tracking Al Qaeda and ISIS, both in terms of, you know, online digital fueled radicalization and also in a concrete operational way where they were doing things like having separate cells, you know, loosely organized groups pursuing the same goal. And then also, you know, operational security in terms of, you know, switching cell phones, uh, seemingly using burners and, and, and Internet apps to generate numbers. And again, using encrypted apps like Signal to obscure their communications. So, you know, this really is an urgent message on several fronts fronts. He presents the data to give us more detail than we've ever had about January 6th, but he also couples it with personal and military expertise to put a clear label on this and tell us just how much of a threat he believes it is. Well, the book is really well done, um, but before we wrap things up, let me just... Go through some names here. I know I, I spoke with um, or uh, contacted Roger Stone, and of course he denies any wrongdoing. The former president has uh, has said several different things on this issue, but largely denies any wrongdoing. So we'll we'll see how this plays out. Hunter Walker with Denver Riggleman. The book is the breach. It's a really good book. Thank you for your time, Hunter. Thanks for taking the time to read it. I really think it's an important story. Let's bring in Scott McFarland, CBS News congressional correspondent who is covering all things January 6th for CBS News. Scott, thanks for being with us. Who is Stuart Rhodes and what are the Oath Keepers trying to accomplish? What are they all about? Defining the Oath Keepers is more art than it is science. There's no Webster's Dictionary definition of this group, and it may vary based on which branch or member of the Oath Keepers with whom you're speaking. Stuart Rhodes, though, unequivocally is the founder of the Oath Keepers, a Harvard Law grad, a former congressional staffer, somebody who is wise in the ways of Washington, at least at one point he was seemingly, he is the founder of this organization, which has branched off, and which, which grew uh, over the course of years. But the group that was here January 6th, according to the Justice Department, I think would be characterized as a very radicalized branch of this group. According to the court filings, they came here with weaponry, tactical gear. They raised money. They raised arms and came to Washington plotting to block the peaceful transfer of power. And it's interesting to say that out loud. You know, this is a criminal case in which they're accused of trying to block the peaceful transfer of power. It's quite something. Stuart Rhodes was an orchestrator and an organizer, according to the Justice Department. So quite a turn for somebody who used to work in the Capitol as a staffer and somebody with a law degree to find himself in the most grave legal trouble, jeopardy, of any of the 880 January 6th defendants. They have been referred to, especially because of their alleged actions on January 6th, as an armed paramilitary organization, which makes them sound like a real threat. Are they? Could they have been? According to the court filings, that's exactly what they are and were armed. They had staged guns outside the city limits of Washington and came to the Capitol with tactical gear, a radicalized paramilitary, though well, they're accused of using a military stack formation to breach the police line and that it was directed by the conspirators. 
yeah, that's what they're accused of doing and plotting to attack the United States Congress. I mean, this is something that not only makes it a top line case from January 6th, but just the rarest of rare criminal cases in American history. That's why this trial is going to be captivating. That's why it's going to be especially noteworthy if any of these five co-defendants in this first group to face trial gets on the witness stand and tries to explain why they were doing this. And what sets this apart from even the other conspiracy cases from January 6th is in the court filings, the prosecutors allege a number of things that are different, that they raised money, they did a fundraising or underwriting initiative, that they secured all these guns and stowed them in a predetermined location in Boston, Virginia, where the gun laws are looser than they are in the District of Columbia. And in one court filing, Jeff, which still stands out to me as perhaps the most impactful, there's an allegation Stuart Rhodes tried to call Donald Trump by cell phone during the riot unsuccessfully, but that's a provocative accusation and makes this stand out in so many ways. It really does. It really does. And and Rhodes, again, he's... If you look into this, his background, didn't he clerk for a judge? He went to Harvard. So I wonder, what, what in the world happened to this guy? How did he become what the prosecutors allege? This radicalized parliament... parliament paramilitary leader. Um, there's been a transition in Stuart Rhodes's life that's likely going to come become clear during this trial, where he became this advocate of the use of force, either against or on behalf of America. Um, you know, he has that kind of that, that unique look, the eye patch from an injury he suffered many years ago. He is accused in court filings of being a potential danger to society, an advocate for civil war and unrest. Yeah, that's a far cry from somebody who used to serve as a congressional staffer. That's a far cry from somebody who was in an Ivy League school and, according to the reporting we've done, was quite successful as a student there. This is different, but it's also, I think you'll hear, one of the reasons why he might have been a leader some people followed. I mean, he wasn't just a member of the Oath Keepers. He was the founder and a leader of the Oath Keepers. And that's an important distinction, Jeff. We're talking about a conspiracy case where there was this allegation of a plan and the execution of a plan need a leader. You've been following these cases, these January 6th cases. You you are our encyclopedia of January 6th legal information. So I know when I ask you, how serious is a seditious conspiracy charge? Boy, does that sound like a headache. Oh, my goodness. Uh, You know what kind of prison time, jail time, some of those who have pleaded guilty, who've been convicted, are serving or will serve. What kind of prison time could someone convicted of these seditious conspiracy charges face? I mean, these are these are among the most serious charges so far in this investigation. Easily. This case is a unicorn. It is by orders of magnitude more serious than the other hundreds of January 6th cases I followed. I mean, this one is just different and the trial is going to be different. In the large number of these January 6th cases that have been closed, you know, hundreds of them, 
you measure the prison sentences by days and weeks. That's where these things ended up. So many of these defendants, a few hundred have already pleaded guilty. A couple dozen have gone to trial. Most of those that have been closed are misdemeanor cases that were pleaded down by the Justice Department. Somebody pleads guilty to unlawful picketing or somebody pleads guilty to disorderly conduct, didn't hurt anybody, didn't damage anything. Some of them avoid prison altogether, despite what you and I may characterize as some pretty dangerous and ugly rhetoric on tape. These defendants largely are pleading guilty to misdemeanors. In the more serious cases we've seen so far where somebody put hands on a police officer, assaulted or injured a police officer, or went into a uniquely sensitive place like the Senate chamber and looked through the desks, those prison sentences are measured in a few years, maybe a few months. The longest sentences we're seeing right now, seven or eight years. Yeah, this one's different. This is seditious conspiracy. Um, a criminal charge so rare... I've never covered one. I doubt many of my colleagues have ever covered a seditious conspiracy trial. This one, you can measure the possible prison sentences by years and decades. And it also raises a provocative question. There are a few of these accused Oath Keeper conspiracy defendants, seditious conspiracy defendants, who have pleaded guilty to seditious conspiracy and agreed to flip and help the prosecutors What do prosecutors expect to get from this? Is there another tier of defendants we haven't heard of yet that's above the Oath Keepers? And if so, who are they and what are they accused of? Uh, So even though we're expecting, um, you know, some of the information connected to this case, we've been hearing over the last uh, year or so. It sounds like you expect more surprises in this case. And it, it sounds like, maybe I'm wrong, it sounds like you think the prosecutors have a pretty strong case. Well, here's what the recent history of these prosecutions tells us, Jeff. So far, the Department of Justice has gone to trial here in Washington, D.C. in about 20 different cases or 20 different defendants in front of Washington, D.C. juries. They have secured convictions in 100% of the cases on 100% of the charges, and the jurors usually come back with their verdicts within about two or three hours if you include the lunch break. So that's the hand the prosecutors have been dealt in the Oath Keepers case, a Washington, D.C. jury in a January 6th case. Not to say all the cases are the same, but the Department of Justice has shown it's pretty good at making the case in these January 6th prosecutions, perhaps because there's so many so many visuals, images, videos, social media posts, emails, text messages to share at trial as exhibits. Perhaps it's because it's pretty easy to explain to a jury what January 6th was and the nature of the crime. This is a much different type of case, though. They've got to prove a conspiracy. They haven't done that at trial yet. We'll see what their success rate is. And I can tell you this about the trial, Jeff. Get comfortable. It's going to take a while. They're going to be there three or four weeks. Even jury selection took more than two days. This is different in its complexity. It's different in its breadth. This will just be different. But the Department of Justice is batting a 1,000 right now. Yeah, they they have some pretty solid evidence uh, in that a lot of it is on camera. I mean, we saw this unfold live. And so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see 
how all of this unfolds in the courtroom. And who's who's the the judge in this case? Judge in this case is a an, a appointee from I believe oh, eight or nine years ago named Amit Mehta, who is now trying to wrangle this enormous trial through his courtroom. Um, you know, with the courts finally reopened from the pandemic, uh, Judge Mehta has spent the last few months knocking down what seems to be a constant barrage of requests from these Oath Keeper defendants to move their trial out of Washington, D.C., arguing that the jury pool here is too biased to handle it. The arguments they make are that the media has inflamed the jury with their coverage of January 6th uniquely here in the District of Columbia, or that the jury pool in the District of Columbia is just not representative enough of America. They want their cases moved to Virginia or Ohio. And Judge Mehta has just one after another after another issued these rulings saying, no, use the jury selection process. You'll be fine. There are more than enough prospective jurors who are unbiased and able to handle this case. And he started to show some fatigue or frustration with this barrage of requests for delay and moving of trials. But I'll tell you this, Jeff, this isn't the only group trying to move their January 6th trials out of D.C., making those arguments. A growing series of them have said the same. The thing is, not one of them has succeeded. Yeah, defendants in these cases are racking up losses, just huge losses. In so many different kinds of ways. McFarland, CBS News congressional correspondent, and the man covering January 6th related events for CBS News. So happy that you will be in that courtroom uh, for much of this trial and relaying the information to the public. Thanks for your time, Scott. Thanks, Jeff. Larry Sabato, the director of the University of Virginia Center for Politics, joins us now. Larry, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Jeff. Nice to be with you. All right. So the the countdown, well, let's be honest. I was about to say the countdown is beginning for the midterms, but frankly, Republicans and Democrats have been counting down for months now, but we're getting closer. Six weeks out. Six weeks out, Larry, who do you think has the edge right now? Jeff, it's a midterm election, and uh, almost always in American history, the out-of-power party in the White House ends up picking up seats, at least in the House. Senate's dicier. So I would have to say the edge goes to the Republicans in the House. The Senate is a coin toss right now. The Senate is a coin toss. So, so what do you think are the issues as we head toward the finish line? Uh, on the Republican side, uh, they are focusing, as they had always intended to focus, on Joe Biden, who has become less popular. I wouldn't say a 40 to 45 percent approval rating is terribly unpopular, but it's not uh, popular and it's not the kind of rating that would add seats to his party's caucus. So they were going to focus on uh, Biden. They are focusing on Biden. And they're using the issues they'd always planned to use, which is crime and immigration, as well as other things connected to the Biden administration. Uh, the problem for Republicans is that the election has gotten more complicated. All election campaigns evolve. And this one has been evolving for most of the year 2022, if not before 2022. 
And it has evolved in a way that's helping Democrats, which obviously Republicans hadn't counted on. Why is it helping Democrats? Because of two main factors. The Supreme Court has had a major impact on this election because of their overturning Roe v. Wade, the Dobbs decision uh, in uh, early in the summer. And that has helped Democrats because they were having great trouble motivating their followers, motivating their strongest supporters, including women and young people. Well, the overturning of Roe took care of that. Now, Democratic enthusiasm and interest in voting in this election is actually about the same as Republican enthusiasm. That's unusual in midterm elections. The other factor that's helping Democrats is one that Republicans should have anticipated, but did not. I think I know where you're going with this one. Are you talking about the former president? I am indeed. And the reason the Republicans didn't quite believe it is because it's never happened in American politics, not even in the pre-television or pre-radio era. We've never had a former president who absolutely would not get off the stage and often dominates the stage and gets more attention than the sitting president of the United States and not in a favorable way for Republicans. And that's Donald Trump. So what you're saying is that he he is a drag for Republicans, even though there were a lot of Republicans out there who still want his endorsement. Yes, and they tend to be endorsements in primaries, Republican primaries. That's when Trump can make a difference and has made a difference in many cases. The problem for the Republican Party is Trump helps Republicans nominate candidates who generally are weaker in the general election. Uh, The establishment Republicans, the mainstream Republicans, often favor candidates, you know, on the basis of whether they can win in November. Imagine that. Trump judges candidates on the basis of whether they're loyal to him and will produce delegates at the convention in 2024 should he decide to seek another term. What is interesting, I think, is that as we head into this midterm, there has been a what I think is a flurry of legislative activity pushed by this White House. You know, the, the president and Democrats, frankly, in addition to what happened in the Supreme Court with Roe v. Wade in terms of getting out their voters, this president has some legislative wins. And I'm not leaving Republicans out of this. Some of these are bipartisan legislative wins. Doesn't that help the Democrats or does it? I don't know. Does it help Republicans? Uh, It helps the Democrats in one critical way. Just as the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade has energized Democrats, so too has the passage of a number of very significant bills this summer. Uh, For the Democrats, let's be honest, they were too busy fighting one another for the first year to get much done. They had a big victory early in Biden's uh, term about Uh, COVID relief and other things built into a big uh, financial package. But other than that, they really weren't able to get a lot done. And what they did get done was indeed somewhat bipartisan. 
though you look at, at who's voting for it, it tends to be Republicans who are retiring and don't have to face the voters again, or the shrinking band of relatively moderate Republicans or moderate conservative Republicans in the House and especially the Senate. But this has energized Democrats as well. It's not just Dobbs. It's not just the overturning of Roe. It's also the fact that Democrats are finally acting on the agenda that they had in 2020 that Democratic activists were planning on and didn't get in 2021. I wanted to ask you about something else. Politics, the big picture, if you will. Um, the previous question I asked you about whether these wins, some of them are bipartisan, help Democrats or, or Republicans. What we saw this past week is a broad bipartisan group of senators who worked for months on legislation to uh, reform this 19th century law governing the electoral co college process and counting votes after presidential elections. You know, so when I heard that, you know, this bipartisanship between these senators, including Mitch McConnell, who threw his influence behind uh, this bill, I wonder if there is a shift underway, away from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and away from the far right? Or is Congress moving back closer to the center with the fringes having less influence? Well, on the Democratic side, I don't think there's been that much of a change because even in the heyday of a handful of very progressive legislators, they really weren't able to get a lot passed because uh, as liberal as Nancy Pelosi may be or uh, Senator Schumer, the majority leader in the Senate may be, they have been focused on what will help their members get elected or reelected. And so they, they really haven't gone all that far to the left, or they haven't changed the character of the party. The party that has changed dramatically is the Republican Party. And that's what makes this interesting. We need to remember this is a small cut of the Republican Party. It is still members who are relatively moderate, moderate conservative. They're in a small minority, but they're enough to make a difference, particularly in the Senate, where it takes 60 votes to get most things done. Democrats only have 50 votes. They need 10 votes from Republicans. So the Electoral Count Act, why in the world would that now become almost mainstream among Senate Republicans? Or one assumes it is, if Mitch McConnell is signed on, he's going to bring the other leadership members, I think, uh, to the table or to the, to the vote, and I vote, when it comes up uh, for a vote. Why, why did that happen? Because those establishment Republicans, those mainstream Republicans, also don't want another January 6th. They do not want Donald Trump to get another term in the White House. This is one step to prevent all of that. And so it's a very pragmatic and smart step by those Republicans who are voting for it. If you had a secret ballot in the Senate, this revision 
of that uh, very old law that has left lots of giant loopholes as you can drive a, a Brinks truck through, uh, you would find that I would say probably 80% of the Republican caucus would vote for it, joining nearly 100% or 100% of the Democratic caucus. But they're not voting in secret. They have to vote publicly. And Donald Trump doesn't want this to pass because he knows uh, if the rules change, and uh, he's in a situation where uh, there's a close vote. He can't pull the same kind of tricks that he tried to pull in 2020, which came close to fruition, given what was happening on January 6th. If he'd had a more pliable vice president, who can say what kind of country we'd be living in today? That was a long answer, but I think it reflects the, the real reality, which is, the Republican establishment has never wanted Donald Trump, hoped to get through his term and wave bye-bye to him. And of course, Trump is not cooperating and never will cooperate. Which means there are those of us who cover the intersection of politics and the law are going to be pretty busy, I think, over the next couple of years, maybe longer. Maybe longer. Yes, long time. I mean, there are many members of the Trump family. <laughs> Gosh. Um, all right. So I'm going to put you on the spot, but I'm sure you you get this question uh, quite a bit. So you're probably prepared. Uh, how do you think the midterms end up? Who wins control of the House, the Senate? Uh, does President Biden come out of this looking good? set up for 2024, or will he be wounded? Well, what's going to happen, and we still have six weeks to go, is likely to be a Republican victory in the House. It might be a slim one, but I tend to think it's going to be more substantial. I tend to think Republicans will pick up 15, 20, maybe a little more than 20 seats. It's going to put them up near or at the 230 seats they had in 1994 in the election that put Newt Gingrich in power as speaker. Uh, that's the likelihood. Democrats are hoping, maybe dreaming, that somehow they hold the House and lose fewer than five seats. And anything's possible, but I think that's unlikely. The Senate is another matter. Senate races, even in this hyper-polarized -polar, era, Senate races are idiosyncratic. And so you can look at individual races, candidates get to know individual candidates, and there are at least a few percent of voters who actually will mix and match and ticket split the way a much larger percentage of voters used to do. So on the Senate, I honestly think that it's right on the edge of the knife and that a strong breeze in one direction or another between now and the end of the campaign, November 8th. Uh, will determine which party controls the Senate. Either way, it's going to be narrow. You're, you're going to have just a majority of, you know, zero, one, or two, I think is fair enough to say. Now, will, will Biden look good? Well, if he loses both houses, he's not going to look good. But that doesn't mean he's in a bad position for 2024. Bill Clinton lost both houses of Congress in 1994, and everybody said he was a one-term president. He won easily in 1996 for a second term. In 2010, 
Uh, Barack Obama lost the first midterm elections he had in 2010 by a landslide in the House. He did keep the Senate, but it was a landslide Republican victory in the House. Everybody said Barack Obama is a one-term president. He won re-election in 2012 by a comfortable margin. So whatever our immediate reaction is after this midterm election, I'd be willing to bet it's wrong. Well, we will see. Coming up on coming up on five weeks away from the midterms, one of the best, if not the best, political analyst in the business, Dr. Larry Sabato, director of the University of Virginia Center for Politics. Larry, thanks for your time. It was a lot of fun, Jeff. Thank you. I wanted to spend some time talking about my friend and colleague, Bill Plant. He was a legend in this business. He died this past week at the age of 84 years old. How do you do? My name is Bill Plant, and I'd like to show you some of my work. Have all the activities of the past weeks in Selma come to uh, fruition now? Is this the, the grand climax? I would say this and uh, its culmination in the march on the Capitol uh, on Thursday. Today they get their uniforms. Tomorrow they'll go into training, and soon they'll become part of Vietnam's 615,000 men under arms. Did you make a mistake in sending arms to Tehran, sir? No, and I'm not taking any more questions. Are you likely to be content drifting slowly off stage? Or do you think that someday you will want to run for office, some office, again? I don't have any idea. Well, Governor, the conventional wisdom was that if you'd had a blowout tonight, you'd have been the nominee, no questions asked. You could have taken four-day weekends between now and the convention. Uh, well, it looks like I'm going to be working for a while. Mr. President, do you believe Osama bin Laden's denial that he had anything to do with this? No question, he is the prime suspect. It begins, sir, to look like you're campaigning and like you're following the Harry Truman model uh, against the do-nothing Congress instead of negotiating. Are you negotiating, will you? I am always open to negotiations. What is also true is they need to do something. He leaves behind his wonderful wife of 34 years, Robin Smith, who is an award-winning documentary film producer. He also leaves behind his, his sons, and he's survived by eight grandchildren and great-grandchildren. You know, there are a lot of people in the CBS News family who were very close to Bill Plant. He was just one of those guys. He was approachable. And I was going to tell you a personal story. You know, when I part of the reason I came to CBS News for, was for to learn from guys... And legendary journalists like Bill Plant. When I got here to the Washington Bureau, Bill Plant was here, still at the White House. Still at the White House after some 35 years of covering the White House. You know, he just loved his job. And Bill Plant, when I first met him, you know, I was nervous. Frankly, yeah, I'd gotten the job, but didn't feel like I was worthy. I literally didn't feel like I was worthy. But Bill Plant, he was one of those guys who made you feel welcome, made you feel part of the team. And he will be missed. 
not just because he was a legendary CBS News White House correspondent, but he was just a good man. Um, Bill Plant? No, Bill's not here. That's shocking. Bill Plant, CBS News, the White House. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. And don't forget that you can hear ACF on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.